0: Experience for me to be preaching here this morning. Uh, some of you don't know me, some of you do know me, and some of you changed my diapers in the nursery at the church. So uh, this area is home for me, and in particular, this church is home for me. So it's really good for me um, to be with you this morning. I have so much immense gratitude uh, for many of you here. So thank you. Um, you guys had to put up with my childhood and teenage years, and uh, I appreciate that. So. Now, a lot has changed since now and then, in particular in the location that I live. So when I went off to school, I went to Olivet here in Illinois. And then afterwards, my wife and I, we moved down to Dallas, Texas uh, for seminary. And so when I was at seminary, I got a job at Schofield Church. Think, you know, Schofield Reference Bible. Uh, So I went to Schofield Church. Um, It's kind of hard to fill the shoes of the guy who wrote the Bible, uh, but it was a good experience being at that church. We loved our time in Dallas. Uh, We lived in this Hispanic neighborhood there. We bought a house out there. It was really great. Um, Now, we were the only people in our neighborhood who spoke uh, just English. Most of it was Spanish, but we got to be really good friends with our Hispanic neighbors. Uh, So they would invite us for block parties and things like that, which, again, we were the only ones who didn't speak Spanish, but I was eating so many tacos, it's okay, because it's rude to talk with your mouth full. So that kind of saved me. Uh, We had a good sense of community. I remember one time, like, one of the girls from the youth group tried to come into our house, and they're like, hey, do you know them? And they're like, you know, look, I'm sorry, I'm just from the youth group. So it was great. After that, we moved to northeast Ohio. Uh, I was called to pastor a church there, small town between Cleveland and Pennsylvania. Uh, And we had to move locations, and I did the most millennial thing ever. I bought a house online without ever looking at it. So, you know, but guys, Amazon's got good refunds. You just got to hit the button and you're fine. Uh, (laughs) But there's a difference when you move from a big city like Dallas to a small town in Ohio. The house value in Dallas was so much greater than when we moved to Ohio. Same square footage. House wasn't any nicer or anything like that. But the number one rule of real estate is location, location, location. You see, location matters. Everybody wants to be in Dallas. It's where the jobs are. It's where the money is. It's, it's where the entertainment is. It's where life is really happening. And this isn't just true in real estate. It, it's true for many areas of our life. The location is so important. We think about military strategy. Certain cities, certain topographical locations, like taking a mountain or taking a hill or taking the waterway so you can have a supply chain. And I can't help but wonder as we think about the importance of location. Does location matter for the mission of God? You know, we're not in a physical war. We're in a spiritual war. You know, sometimes me and my girls. You know, I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry. You know that old song. We're in a. We're not in a physical battle. We're in a spiritual battle. And here's the question. In the battle for the souls of men and women and children, where is the most strategic location that God wants to deploy us at? In other words, where should I be following Jesus at? PJ preached last week about, right, seeing everyone, loving God, loving others and doing something about it. I watched the sermon online, so. (laughs) I won't make y'all do it, but. That was your warning, okay? Now you, now you're ready. Are there areas that are more valuable to do God's mission? And now, when people think about this question, Christian circles, scholars, and pastors and missiologists, there's a variety of answers. You know, some say we should do ministry in Christians should move to cities and urban areas because those are the centers of cultural influence. If you minister to them and and you change the culture, that will spread out to the rural areas. In fact, I was listening to a podcast once that said this. If Jesus was here today, he would do ministry in big cities. So that's what we should do. That was the point of his message. Now, others say, well, we ought to move to China or India because if you want to win souls, guess what? There's plenty of souls in China and India, 1.4 1.4 billion in China, 1.3 billion in India, but let's be honest nobody can actually count the souls in India, right? They're everywhere. Only 329 million in the United States. I mean, those two countries alone make up 36% of the world's population. Other strategists say, "Well, we got to strike where the iron is hot. Let's go to South America, let's go to Africa, let's go to India. That's where God's already working, so why don't we work where we already see a movement of God going?" And finally, some are saying, no, let's strategize where people have never heard the gospel. Because after all the nations hear the gospel, perhaps the Lord will return and usher in his kingdom. And so with all these different strategies, well, who's right? They all have some good points to consider. But what do we do if we live in a place like the Sauk Valley area? Or where I pastor, small town Ohio? I mean... Not really a center of cultural influence. Not, not a great, big population. It's not an unreached people group. There, there's churches all over these areas. I mean, does Jesus really want us to be on mission here? Isn't there a better place we could be on mission? If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open up to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, I know I'm dropping you in the middle of a book without much context, but you guys have read the Gospels before, right? Uh, But but the Gospel of Mark is this one-way journey where he calls his disciples from Galilee all the way to the cross. And the question for us as we read the Gospel of Mark is, will you be obedient to following Jesus all the way to the cross? This morning I'm going to title my sermon, The Three Times That Others Begged Jesus For a Location Change. Sometimes we do that at work, you know, can can I shift offices, can I shift locations? This is the three times that others begged Jesus for a location change. And as we go through the story, you'll see these three times that people begged for a location change, and I think it's going to give us something to think about as we think of living strategically on mission where Jesus wants us to be. So let's read verse 1. It says, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, in the previous chapter, you can read about how Jesus told his disciples that they were heading to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or sometimes it's called the Lake of Gethsemane. Now, remember, this was part of Jesus' plan. This was his strategy. He's been teaching the Jewish crowds all day long. There were so many people listening to Jesus, he had to get in the boat because they were crowding him, and he couldn't even stand on the lands, and the crowds were so attentive that the, the service went from sun up to sundown. I mean, Jesus had the crowds. That must be where God wants him to do ministry, right? God the Father says, Jesus, you should be doing ministry here because everybody wants to hear. Set up shop, build a big church there, sell your swag. Everyone's going to love to be there. But instead of setting up shop, Jesus says, hey, we got to go to the other side of the lake. And that's a big deal for a Jew because this isn't just a a boat ride. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah to the Jewish people, and now he is going to the other side, the Gentile side. According to the Jewish Talmud and the writings of the church fathers, the other side of the lake is actually where the descendants of the pagan Canaanites lived. Remember Joshua drove out the Canaanites? And now the descendants are living there. This is a land of unclean people. I mean, the disciples thought, Jesus, what kind of strategy is this? They don't know the law. Their ancestors worshiped Baal. They led our people into astray into idolatry. They do bad things over there like eating sausage wrapped in bacon. Jesus, we can't go over there. They don't read their Bibles. We'll probably become unclean. But, you know, you're Jesus, so okay, let's go. And as they go to cross this boat, a big storm occurs. In this storm, the disciples realize that Jesus must be God. That's a great point of that story. But I want you to think about this. Why did the storm occur? Now, the truthful answer is the Bible doesn't tell us, but we do know this. The storm was resistance against the mission that Jesus was going on. In other words, Somebody didn't want Jesus and the apostles to go to the other side of the lake. I got a sneaky suspicion of who that might have been. And so Jesus and his disciples, they reached the other side of the lake in the country of the Gerasenes. We don't know exactly where this is. But as soon as they reach there, this ex canaanite unclean territory, something amazing happens. Look at verse 2. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately... Immediately, there met him out of the tombs a man with unclean spirits. The disciples are probably like, told you so, right? You know, I mean, you know, they're like, this is exactly what we knew would happen. And look at a description of this guy's life, verse 3. He lived among the tombs, okay, Unclean. No one could bind him, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, he broke the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. The dude's real messed up. Like real messed up. Lives in a graveyard, superhuman strength cries out day and night, cuts himself with rocks. And that's the first person you see when you step out of the boat. I think some of the people were like, "Uh, Jesus, that's fine, you go out there, I'm gonna chill here in the boat, right? This is not what we signed up for. And verse six, when he sees Jesus from afar, he ran. I mean, he's running at him. Wild, naked, cutting guys, running at Jesus and the apostles. But when he gets in front of Jesus, he falls down before him. And listen to what he says, verse 7. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus had asked the unclean spirit, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion. for we are many. Now, a legion is a unit in the Roman military. Uh, Numbers change throughout history, so we don't know exactly how many. But at maximum, it's 5,000 soldiers. At minimum, it's 1,500. The guy has at least 1,500 demons housed inside of him. Not good. Now, in the modern Western world, this probably seems amazing to us, but throughout the globe, of course, practicing witchcraft and the occult, Uh, is a very real thing. Demonic possession is a very real thing. Um, But by the way, don't be too surprised when it comes here. According to one article I read in the United States, in 2008, there were 600,000 people who identified as neo-pagan. And in 10 years since then, the estimates guess about 3 million. So guys, this is coming to the Western world. But what I see is when we read Mark's gospel, the demons say, what have you to do with us Jesus, in other words, Jesus, leave us alone. Go back to the other side of the lake. You're the Jewish Messiah. This is our country. This is the land of the Canaanites, our descendants. This is where we live. And look at verse 10. And the demons begged Jesus earnestly not to send him out of the country. The demons begged Jesus, not to send him out. This is our territory. This is Satan-controlled territory, Jesus. Leave us alone. Now Satan knows the plan of God, of course. They're one of Eve's sons, they're one of Abraham's sons, they're one of David's descendants. He will be crushed and all the nations of the world will be blessed. Everlasting justice and righteousness will come forth. And let's face it, up to this point in history, Satan has had control of the nations. With the exception of Israel, he has ruled over the affairs of men. But now the king has come. And he wants his land back. Well, the demons are going to beg and plead for Jesus to go. This is the first pleading, the first begging of, Jesus, we don't want a location change. The first of the three pleadings. And so the demons say, Jesus, here's an alternative. Instead of making us leave the country, verse 11, there was a great herd of pigs that was feeding on the hillside. And they begged Jesus saying, send us into the pigs instead and let us enter them. Jesus, we'll leave the person alone, but we don't want to leave this area. It's still our area. We'll go live in the pigs instead, because we know you like people and all. We'll live in the animals. Now, brothers and sisters, let us reason together. The devil is called the father of lies. Can we really believe anything these demons say? They're liars. They're so deceived about what the truth is, they wouldn't know the truth if it hit them right in the face. Why would Jesus ever make an agreement with devils? And amazingly, Jesus does what the demons ask. Verse 13, he gave them permission. And I think as soon as Jesus gave them permission, the devils maybe had a smile because they had a plan. It says, the unclean spirits came out, they entered the pigs, and the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the sea. Now, I want to make a point. Demons can't drown in water because demons don't have bodies. They don't have lungs. They are spiritual entities. They didn't die in the sea. So what is the point of making a herd of 2,000 pigs die in the sea? Well, 2,000 pigs is a whole lot of money to somebody, I mean, we're talking about an entire family fortune. I mean, in today's market, and this was pre-all inflation, uh, if there were breeding pigs in today's market, they're about $300 a pig. That's $600,000. And in the ancient world, they would have been far more valuable due to the scarcity of resources. You see, while the demons couldn't make Jesus leave... Perhaps angry and fearful townspersons could. Verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country. People came to hear and see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described him what had happened to the demon-possessed man and the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. Second, begging. Second, pleading for a location change. The people say, Jesus, get out of here. We don't want you here. I think that was the demon's plan. They didn't want to leave the territory. They enjoyed their control and possession over men, keeping them in darkness, bondage in their sin. And realizing they couldn't fight with Jesus, they destroyed the economy of one of the villages, and now the village wants Jesus to leave. And amazingly, Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who doesn't have to listen to any of us. What does he do? He listens to the pleading of the town people. Jesus, you're listening to the demons. And you're listening to the townspeople. And then beginning in verse 18, Jesus decides to get in the boat with his disciples and go back to the other side. Now now just stop and consider this for a moment. Jesus had a good thing going before he went over, right? I mean, he's teaching the crowds and the mass and everybody's coming and it's sun up, the sun down, and everyone wants to hear him speak. He, he risks his life and the disciples' life going on a boat through a storm to the other side. They make one convert and then they go back. I mean, what if Billy Graham was preaching in Chicago, had a stadium full, and in the middle of the night, he says, you know, I know everyone wants to listen to me and people are getting saved, but we're gonna get on this plane In the middle of a storm and risk our lives, and we're gonna go to some small town in the middle of Iowa because there was a drunk guy there that needs to hear the gospel. What kind of strategy is that? Who does that? And I think sometimes we, we look at ministry results, and many of us kind of think this thing what are we doing here? Look at all these great churches all around the world, and they're saving people, and they're baptizing people, and they have all these exciting ministries. What are we doing in the Sauk Valley area? What am I doing in a small town in Ohio? We look at missionaries who are doing amazing ministries overseas, and and, and they're making changes, and we wonder, Lord, is what I'm doing here, does it even matter in this small town where we've only seen one convert, when all these other great ministries are going around? Well, like I told you in the beginning, there's three beggings in this story. And the last one happens in verse 18. It says, as Jesus was getting into the boat, The man who had been possessed with demons begged Jesus that he might be with him. Now, now you might think at this point, the point of the text is if you beg Jesus enough, he'll give it to you, right? Demons beg, they get what they want. Townspeople beg, they get what they want. Well, now the ex-demoniac wants to beg with Jesus because he wants to be with Jesus. And out of all the requests given to Jesus thus far, like at least this one's like the most pure, right? Demons beg Jesus because they want Jesus to leave. Townspeople beg Jesus because he wants to leave. The demoniac, he just wants to be with Jesus. I want to go on mission with you, Jesus. I want to I go with you and the apostles. Wherever you go, I want to go. Surely Jesus will say yes because he said yes to everybody else, right? Verse 19, and Jesus did not permit him. Are you kidding me? Yes to the demons, yes to the townspeople who don't even like you, but no to the one guy in the story who actually wants to follow you. Now from a literary and humanistic perspective, this is fascinating, right? That's why there's nobody like Jesus. We would have all goofed up this story and written it so totally different. But Jesus says, no, you cannot come with me. No location change for you, why? Verse 19, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. Demons had their strategy. Make Jesus look bad so nobody will want him here. Townspeople had a strategy. Make Jesus leave, protect our economic wealth. But Jesus also had a strategy. Show the love and mercy and power of God to somebody who didn't deserve it. Radically change a human life and then send him back in to tell his friends and family and his people about how good and holy and loving God is. That's why Jesus left the crowds. That was the strategy that made Jesus sail through the storms. It was the the strategy that was so valuable that no matter what conflict he had with the townspeople and the demons, this one convert would be worth it because a changed life by the mercy of God has power to advance his kingdom, even in areas controlled by darkness. Robert Coleman wrote this in the Master Plan of Evangelism. A few people so dedicated in time will shake the world for God. The best way for this demoniac to follow Jesus was actually not to follow him in the boat. It was not to travel around Israel. It was not to be among the apostles. But the best way for him to follow Jesus was to go back to his family, go back to his friends, go back to his people and say, this is what Jesus has done for me. I I don't know your story this morning. I don't know what you've done. I don't know where you've come from. But I I do know this. Jesus is in the business of transforming lives, darkness to light, sorrow to joy, so we can proclaim the excellencies of his marvelous life, and we can tell people about what it's like to taste the goodness and mercy of God. God saves you out of the drug scene so you can tell the dealers that you found a better high. He saves you out of lust and pornography so you can know a greater kind of intimacy. Jesus came to save sinners, and he does not leave them in their shame, but he transforms their lives so that others can know about his goodness. Now, is this an effective strategy, Jesus? I mean, the guy only knows one sermon. I used to howl all night long and cut myself, and now Jesus saved me, right? Is this really the guy you want to be your evangelist? He doesn't know the Bible. He was literally a walking temple of demons. But verse 20, the man went away. He began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. All those townspeople who used to fear, now they marvel. And we see this demoniac proclaiming the same things that the disciples were called to do back in chapter 4 of, verse, uh, of the book of Mark, the same thing Jesus and John the Baptist were doing in chapter 1. It doesn't matter that he only has one sermon. What matters is that he's been changed by the power and the kindness of our Lord and God. And the man who could not, he couldn't even be bound with chains, he's now in his right mind preaching, Jesus is the Savior. And next time Jesus comes to this region... A great crowd is waiting for him. Quite different than the first time. What was the difference? A faithful man, who was once controlled by the powers of darkness, went where Jesus asked him to go and preached. This region would be a great center for the early church. Really important churches like Damascus and Philadelphia were there. And I can't help but wonder, if it's because of this demoniac, due to the mercy of Christ, that laid the groundwork for the early church so that missionaries like Paul and Barnabas would be successful when they went out in the book of Acts. On the day of this man's conversion, the, de- the demons thought they won. The townspeople, I thought they'd saw the last of this Jesus guy. But due to the infinite wisdom of God, these descendants of the Canaanites had experienced the power and mercy of the Jewish Messiah. And it's because this demoniac was willing to follow Jesus, even when it meant not following Jesus. In our opening, I asked you, what is the most strategic location for you to do ministry in? The answer, of course, is not on the other side of the lake or where the crowds gather. The most strategic location for you to do ministry this morning is the location that Jesus calls you to go to. You want to know the best place to follow Jesus? It's wherever he wants you to be. It's not the location that's so important. It's the location where God wants you to be that's important because his strategy is beyond our strategy. He knows the future, and we do not. He had no idea when he went back to his hometown all the things that would happen. He was probably embarrassed. If they only knew, Jesus, they know my past They know the things I've done. Jesus, they know all the shame and the guilt I have. And I don't don't know if I can really go back to these people. But Jesus knew the power of a transformed life. He probably believed nobody would ever listen to me. People hate me. People tell their kids, don't go by my home because I'm crazy. And I was crazy. But Jesus knew. And as we think about this story, let me end with a few implications for us. Number one, I want you this morning to follow Jesus wherever he tells you to go. I don't really care where that is, but follow Jesus wherever he wants you to go. It doesn't have to be where there's the great urban centers. It doesn't have to be in the most populous area. It doesn't have to be on an unreached people group. Maybe it is all those things. Maybe it's to your next door neighbor. Maybe it's to your cousin. Maybe it's to your coworker. Because the most strategic place Jesus wants you to be is the place where he calls you to go. Now, the next follow-up question is, how do I know where Jesus wants me to go? That's another sermon, okay? PJ can preach that sermon to you, all right? (laughs) That's a great question. Um, Let me suffice with saying this. I'm not one of these people who claim to hear the voice of God. I'll go on record saying I've never heard God speak audibly to me, uh, but I do think it's normal for God to lead us and give us burdens and inwardly uh, testify to our spirit through his spirit. And we can discern this burden through prayer and the word and the counsel of godly men and women and fasting and all those things. You know, before I went to my church in Ohio, I was candidating to see some different churches and one of these churches was right here in Sterling, Illinois, and it's like, oh, great, my family's here and and I know people here and I would love to come back here. But when we visited Ohio, a place I didn't even really wanna go, my wife, because we're big Michigan fans, had this shirt that says, the worst state ever, and had a picture of Ohio. I said, you cannot wear that shirt on our visit. You can't wear that shirt. But well, we went there, and we did that dangerous thing. We prayed, and uh, we had an unshakable burden to go there. We knew it was where God wanted us to be. You know, and people always ask me, how long are you going to be here, Kyle, at our church? And, you know, I don't know. I have no plans for my ministry. Uh, I'll, I'll leave that to God. And, and I, I just want to be where God wants me to be, and that's my prayer for you. I know PJ feels the same because I got it from him, right? Anywhere, any place, uh, or any time, doing anything that God wants you to be, being a part of God's AAA team. Listen, if God wants you to leave this church and go someplace else, then go. I'm sure this church would miss you, but you are called to serve him. Now, if you're leaving this church because you're mad, I'm going to challenge you on that one. I know a lot of people are doing that this day. You know, people, people leave the church and say, no one even called me when I left. Well, you didn't call anybody else when you left, right? It's not about you. Get in contact, right? Christians, we're to forgive one another and work through conflict. So don't leave because you're mad. But if God really wants you to serve and minister somewhere, you need to be where God wants you to be. That's number one. The most strategic place is the place where God wants you to be. Number two, your home is a mission field. We always think of missions happening out there somewhere. You have been sovereignly placed in your home, in your job, in your activities to proclaim the goodness of the Savior. You know, as we think about following Jesus wherever he wants us to go, chances are you're in that place right now. You're there right now. The demoniac was called to open his eyes to the fact that I don't have to get in the boat and go to the other side to follow Jesus. I can follow Jesus right where I'm at. I love the Greek here. It says literally go to your house and towards those that are yours, your people, those who belong to you. Many of you in this room have people who belong to you. You are called to proclaim Christ to them. It's kids, it's parents, it's spouses, it's siblings, it's cousins, it's friends, it's neighbors, it's coworkers. You know what God's big strategy is for reaching them? It's you. It's you. And I could go to some of your people and, and they don't care about me. I don't want to listen to what that pastor has to say. I don't care about his arguments. I don't care about how much he studied or anything like that. But they might be closed off to me and they might not let me come, but you can come. They know you with your past and your struggles and your good things and everything above. Listen, the reason I'm in ministry today is because this church right here did ministry in their hometown. I mean, no one is more humbled and honored to be here this morning than me. I'm overwhelmed by the fact that this church loved me and ministered to my family. My life was a mess as a teenager. I mean, even after coming to Christ, I still struggled. Some of you probably wonder about me being a pastor and you wonder rightly. I don't, I don't deserve to be in ministry at all. But because there was faithful Sunday school teachers, Awana leaders, youth group leaders, pastors, friendship, prayer partners, that's where I'm at, the reason I am where I am today. Going home doesn't sound heroic, right? Going overseas to tribes and villages, that's heroic. People don't write books about those who stay at home. But let me tell you this God loves the people in Rock Falls. He loves people in Sterling and Dixon and the surrounding area. And my name is in the book of life because you guys loved your hometown well. God has sovereignly placed you in your home to do ministry. Do not miss those who are right around you. And finally, number three, God will use your past for his glory. Some of you are scared to go to those who you know really well because you have a past. You're like, I don't know what to say. I'm not very good at speaking. I don't know the Bible as well as I would like to. And I'm just worried they'll judge me because I've done wrong things in my past. Let me go out and on a limb this morning. Most of you probably don't have a past as bad as the man who was possessed by demons. Amen? Right? Like, you probably know more scripture than he did. Sitting out in the tombs, cutting yourself all night naked and howling. Most of y'all probably don't have that testimony. And if he can transform a village because Christ worked in his life, you can do the same wherever God calls you to do. I just want you to know this. My question to you, would you be faithful and going where God wants you to go? You're part of his strategy to reach the nations. And what made the demoniac's testimony powerful was the fact that he broke from this past life, that he used to be this way, and now he's this way. I could never minister to my kids because I was a harsh father, some of you might think. You know what? When God changes you and they see that transformed life, there is no better person to proclaim the gospel to your kids than a father who is now gentle and kind and loving. It speaks volumes. If you used to be a cynical and sharp and sarcastic and angry person, but now you've met the Lord and you're joyful and you're encouraging and you're humble, people will take notice. People are going to ask you, why are you like this? you need to tell them it's because of Jesus. It's Jesus. Where does Jesus want you to go? What's the most strategic location? Wherever you find yourself, be a witness. If you let him, God will redeem your past and use it for his glory, and you can be a light in the region of darkness. Let's pray. Lord, this morning would we realize what you're trying to do, your strategy for reaching the nations? God, it's coming into the places of darkness. It's transforming our lives, giving us a new song to sing. And as others see that transformation, they want what's really happened. And Lord, of course we're gonna fail. None of us are perfect. Let us walk in humility and forgiveness to those we've wronged. But God, also let us walk in boldness. Let us sing of the love of the Savior and the joy that you've placed in our heart. I pray that we do this in your name, amen.